0: Okay, yeah. so hello everyone, welcome um, to what will be uh, hopefully a fascinating and subversive event. For those of you who don't know, this event is part of a larger online festival called Radical May, which has been organised by radical publishers across the world. It's a varied and multilingual programme of roundtables, talks and debates about the ideas that will transform the world to come. For more information, You can follow the hashtag RadicalMay on Twitter, or there's a link in the description box of the original stream that you can click on to see the schedule of events. Uh, Before we start the event properly, I've just got one more announcement. Uh, The pandemic is a real existential threat to smaller publishers like ourselves. The book trade has shut down across the world, and we're really struggling to keep our heads above the water. To help see us through, we've set up a new Patreon for our biggest fans, and subscriptions cost as little as £3 a month. Benefits include ebooks, merchandise, special gifts, extended versions of our podcast, Radicals in Conversation, and much more. Uh, so head over to patreon forward slash Pretty press to see for yourselves. Okay, on to um, the event. I'll just introduce mm. the topics and, and the uh, speakers, and then we'll hand over to Max and Fanwell. <laughs> so, today's event is called Revenge is a Human Dream on the Poetics and Politics of Avenging. It's a discussion about Max Haven's forthcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghost of Empire, The Demons of Capital and the Settling of Unpayable Debts*, which is out on the 20th of this month. Now in the book, Max argues that capitalism's economic vengeance helps us explain the culture and politics of revenge we see in society more broadly. Moving from the history of colonialism and its continuing effects today, he examines the opioid crisis in the US, the growth of surplus populations worldwide, and he impacts the central paradigm of unpayable debts, both as reparations owed and as a methodology of oppression. So tonight, please welcome Max Haven, the author, and Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University, and Fanwell Antwi, who works with dance and poetry, as well as being an Assistant Professor at the Department of English Language and Literatures at the University of British Columbia. We're also welcoming questions from the live chat, so please do put your questions to Max and Fanwell, um, and we'll take uh, the Q&A session towards the end of the event. Okay, right, I'll hand over to Fanwell.
1: Oh, you're muted. Of course, I'm muted. Of course, I am. <laughs> and the technical issues continues. Uh, I will say thanks Emily and Chris for facilitating this conversation and for getting us rolling. Um, it's exciting to have this conversation with Max and I think I'm gonna begin by maybe telling a story. It's not an embarrassing story but it's a story nonetheless of uh, how I know Max, we met in our grad school um, sometime in in the early 2000s. And we've been in conversation since then. And we did our uh, grad work in our Department of English and Cultural Studies uh, at McMaster University. And um, I feel the need to say that we did our PhD in English and Cultural Studies because this book actually bears the mark of our training. Uh, And what I mean by that is that, that it bears the mark of cultural studies' commitment to, have to, to take on an interdisciplinary approach, uh, to bear on text, uh, to bear on objects, or to bear on ideas. And so this work actually, I can't help myself, but think of it in the tradition of uh, Raymond Williams' idea of Keyword, the Keywords Project, where he it feels as if Marx has taken the, the concept of revenge and actually approached it in, in in all its multiple facets. So this is one of the genealogies uh, that, in terms of reading the book, which by the way I finished this morning. So my brain is still kind of a bit more uh, what's the word crowded with multiple ideas. So I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to try to uh, maybe contain some of my ideas because it's going to be the book itself is so purposefully undisciplined and unworldly. So I feel like our conversation are also going to be on discipline uh, and also a bit all over the place uh, in in, the spirit of of the book. Um, Having said that, Max, I'm gonna begin in the mode of storytelling. I'm gonna begin by reading the preface, the first paragraph of the preface and maybe get you to tell us to begin the conversation. And this is how the preface begins. The genesis of this book is a story my father told me when I was still quite young about his own father who died before I was born and after whom I am named. It's about the first real fight they had. So here's a, here's a book uh, about revenge. And you begin by telling us that it's a book about, it's a book about story. And it's also a book about one between your grandparent, your grandfather, and your father. So can you maybe walk us through what is the role? The first question is like, what's the role of storytelling? Um, mm. and, and what is this revolutionary potential of storytelling that you go on to talk about in this, in, in this book? If you can begin there, yeah.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. And it, it's so wonderful to, to be here and doing this with you. Um, and, and thank you for that. I thought maybe as I answer that question, I would just share a little bit the the table of contents for the book, which we plan to do. Is, is it possible to see it now on the screen for you? Um, so just so that the, the those who are following along at home can get a sense of this this overall structure of the book. and and yeah, as you say, it it the book began it begins as a, as a book, and it also began with this story that I remember my my father telling me um, a long time ago, uh, and, and we've, we've spoken about it since his father was a Holocaust survivor survivor of Auschwitz and uh, my father with, without sort of spoiling the story too much for readers. Uh, my father was always quite impressed as a child by his father's sort of equanimity and and forgiveness towards um, the Germans who persecuted him in a number of ways. Um, but then uh At the the Six Days War in in the late 1960s, when um, Israel rebuffed an attack from neighboring countries, his father, who'd never really had a very strong inclination towards political Zionism, uh, found himself cheering on uh, the Israeli troops uh, in this kind of triumphant military conquest. And it really unsettled my father, I think, um, in, in a very profound way. And it made him think about revenge and his his own father's desire for revenge, which cryptically found its way and its articulation in a kind of anti, anti-Arab racism uh, at that time. And in a sort of desire for a kind of muscular uh, form of nationalism, um, belligerent nationalism. And I think it led my father to in some ways break with many of the things he'd been taught by his family in that moment where he he saw revenge flipped on its head. And I, I, that story has always stuck with me. Um, I think to some extent, I've, I've tried for many years over the last few books I've re- written and, and, and uh, thought about to try and tell a better story about capitalism. Uh, I'm trying to understand what capitalism does in all of its manifold complexity as a system that not only harnesses our time and our labor, but also in some ways our souls. Um, and you know, recently we've, we have, for instance, uh, Franco Bifo Berardi speaking about the soul at work and the way that capitalism puts our innermost uh, dimensions uh, to work in the reproduction of its cycles of accumulation. But I think if we actually took an honest look at the, at the histories of empire, at the histories of race and racism, at the history of other forms of oppression as they, as they entangle themselves with capitalism, maybe we realize that, that for a long time, capitalism has depended on giving us resources to tell a very bad story about who we are and who we are and what we could be. And so for me, the idea of approaching a book like this, as and it is a book of theory, but as a book of revolutionary storytelling is about inviting myself to try and tell a better, more complex, more rich and more satisfying story about how we came to arrive at the place where we are. And what is that place? Well, in this case, it is a place where unfortunately our global, uh, the global scene seems to be stalked by the specters of revenge politics. But for me in this book, I wanna say, if we wanna have an honest, an honest reckoning with and an honest uh, storytelling about where this revenge politics came, the politics of the far right, the politics of neo fundamentalisms, the politics of resurgence and revanchist racism, then we need to tell a longer and more entangled story about how these things have been with us for a long time.
1: Hearing you talk about this longer and entangled story about, about who we are, get, I can't help you but think of Sylvia Winter's idea uh, of Homo narans, uh, the idea that um, we become who we are as a species through storytelling. Uh, um, how is that, how are you thinking about it, both in terms of the we uh, in this larger scale of species and the we in the particular, in terms of uh, the, whether, it, whether it be the case of your family story or the case of the examples that you give in, in, in,
2: uh, uh, in the book? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Sylvia Winter's work has been so profoundly transformative for me and I discovered it very late. Uh, in my, you know, and quite recently. It really comes into play for me, I think, in the in the fourth chapter of the book, where I talk about the opium wars and how they translate into the opium crisis in the United States and elsewhere now. And I try and think through using her work the way that whiteness as a socially constructed category has a kind of narcotic quality. Um, I think That idea that she presents to us, that we are not homo economicus, we are not the money-making, acquisitive, competitive animal that we have been instructed is the norm, but instead we are a storytelling species. And that our storytelling is not only a matter of culture, it's also a matter of how we literally transform our bodies and our chemistry, our our neurochemistry, uh, was really a, a profound revelation for me, I think, what she points to is how powerful the story is in creating what she calls a referent we with a a dash between it, referent we, um, by which groups dominant groups designate who is desirable and selectable and who is abject and should be excluded. And so for me, I take from that on the one hand, the incredible danger of ever using the pronoun we, and yet at the same time, I, I, from winter, this incredible, against all odds, strange optimism that we need to account for ourselves and take responsibility for ourselves as the storytelling species, and therefore call ourselves to a higher kind of we that might actually be able to encompass the incredible breadth of our experience without, you know, doing this terrible injustice and violence that so often you hear from sort of liberal mainstream commentators when they want to talk about all of humanity. And
1: I'm, I'm, I guess I'm also hearing that this we is not a
2: homogeneous we either. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. Not at all. I think it's a we, you know, to, to paraphrase the Zapatistas, it's a we in which all we's fit. Yes. The we's of nobody so.
1: mm-hmm. almost. <laughs> put it in that way. Um, you, you began by saying something about how You've, 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 you've sought to tell a better story about capitalism uh, in, in your work. Uh, and there's a way that the grammar of revenge that you are trying to articulate and the story of revenge that you are trying to articulate uh, demonstrates that. So let me ask you this question. Why add another adjective to, the, to, to, to capitalism? I mean, if, if Adjectives. um, uh, So what is it about capitalism that you are trying to modify for us when you add revenge to it, in that sense?
2: (laughs) I think there's a long project ever since we've started to develop a language for discussing capitalism to add an adjective to make certain things clear. Um, COVID capitalism, pandemic capitalism. quite quite and you know some of the some of the texts that were very influential to me in writing this were things like uh, racial capitalism or carceral capitalism or gore capitalism um we've seen a number of books that have come out of the last few years that that use this method of adding an adjective to the beginning and i think first and foremost i would say that like i i don't think it's a matter of you know one of those adjectives getting it right you know like oh this is the real capitalism because of course capitalism wears many masks and it wears different masks to different people. So what to some of us may look like neoliberal capitalism or cognitive capitalism looks to others like gore capitalism, carceral capitalism, racial capitalism. And we need to be able to tell stories that are complex enough to allow us to take those different vantages at once. The particular advantage I wanted to take in this book was to um, In a certain way speak back to a certain tendency I saw emerging after sort of 2005-2006, where there was a kind of surprise at the return of revenge politics or a surprise at anger as this major political uh, factor, a surprise at the success, for instance, of Donald Trump or the Brexit vote, Modi in India, Erdogan in Turkey. uh, and, and, you know, these sort of far-right revanchist movements elsewhere. And I wanted to say, in, in, in taking up the revanchist politics, the kind of re- revengeful, seemingly nihilistic um, uh, political rhetoric that those, those politicians and their, their supporters were using, I wanted to ask us to look again and say, no, that's not just politics. That's not just some woeful thing that happened and it came out of the blue and it interrupted the otherwise well-flowing nature of global capitalism and the progress of liberalism and democracy. Instead, actually something in the very grammar of the system, this vengefulness that I'm trying to get at um, now makes itself known in the field of politics. And that's neither an exclusively good or an exclusively bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, adding the adjective is really about adding another lens or another, um, another way to look at capitalism, but it's not the exclusive one.
1: Okay. Uh, and in this lens that you are adding, what are you hoping it would
2: do? So- No, mm, yeah. yeah. I guess maybe two things. I mean, once, you know, it, to tell a better, longer story, to have a better common memory that makes us recall that the history of capitalism has always been deeply vengeful, but it's been unequally vengeful. It's been vengeful against certain people, certain bodies, bodies that have been racialized, bodies that have been colonized, bodies that have been uh, exploited through the, the terrors of class. Uh, gendered bodies that don't conform to the uh, paragon of homo economicus and so on. So this vengefulness has always been there. It's just been that mostly the people who are given the affordances to write about capitalism have not necessarily experienced them directly. And so they become invisibilized. But the second thing I wanna do in this book is I wanted to account for my own and many people's uh, feelings of deep simmering rage. And a desire for revenge uh, and that and and to parse out when those are useful and when they are not useful and to parse out a, a more complex language about revenge that doesn't just simply consign it to this sort of uh, demon which should have been borders okay. uh, I'm, oof, I'm struck by so
1: this le- this vocabulary that is coming up that maybe we should clarify for those who haven't read the book you, you you're talking about revenge and then all of a sudden revenge capitalism and you you're thinking through the uh, the grammar or the logic of revenge and then all of a sudden you're using the language of vengeance right so for for the readers who haven't read the book yet how are you moving from revenge and vengeance and what what how how do they make sense of that yeah
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so I, I think the major distinction I ch- really try and make in the book is between revenge and avenging, which yes. is this, it, it's such a subtle distinction, uh, but one that, that goes back quite a ways, I mean, Samuel Johnson makes this distinction in his, you know, famous 18th century dictionary. And, and to a certain extent, it makes sense to us because, of course, you know, the Avengers are clearly a hero group. And the revengers are clearly villains. Um, you know, the, even a, even a, I think a, a child could could give us this in, intuition about the way in which we use these terms. I suppose in um, in my reckoning of revenge in this book, I want to use it mostly to describe two parallel currents. Um, the first is that. Uh, I want to talk about how a system can take revenge. I want to talk about how it's not just an individual human passion, um, not just, not only a human dream, to quote the the name that we gave to this uh, discussion, uh, but actually something that can be baked into the very nature and uh, logic of a system like capitalism. And that a system like capitalism can take revenge on us, it can take revenge on the earth, it can take revenge on people, without anyone necessarily wanting it or intending it, although many people do want and intend it, especially on sort of the far right. Um, So on the one hand, I wanna think about revenge in this way as something that emerges from the way a system works rather than as the motivation for how a system works. At the same time, I wanted to understand the way that throughout capitalism's history and it's entangled uh, history with colonialism, there's been a constant way in which the demands of the oppressed, the exploited, the colonized, have been defamed and denigrated by those in power, as recklessly nihilistically vengeful, in the sense that slave revolts, revolts of colonized people, working class revolts, even uh, you know the movement of the suffragettes for women's votes, in, uh, you know, at the turn of the century. Uh, These were all labeled by the powers that be as pathological, as vindictive, as animated by um, these sort of terroristic spirits. And I'm interested in the way that then capitalism is able to displace its own vengeful nature onto others, onto the others that it labels the witches, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that I trace back in the book to Francis Bacon. Okay, this is the kind of two way movement that I'm trying to understand. And then I want to try and recuperate something of revenge that I speak about as avenging and what I think about later as the avenging imaginary, which is to say, I want to ask what would it mean to not constantly flee from revenge and imagine that revenge is a terrible uh, political category that only leads to ruin and destruction, but walk towards some aspect of it. And the notion of avenging that I try and develop in the book is one uh, that I see popping up throughout the history of capitalism in social movements, where people say, I want revenge, but I don't want revenge on this or that individual, especially. I want revenge on the system, and I want to have a vengeance that will mean that the system could no longer take revenge upon me and, and people that I care about. I want to have, I want to avenge the things that have been done to me, my ancestors, the people I love. Uh, in a way that abolishes the power that caused the harm in the first place. Yeah. And I think in this book, I move towards that horizon and don't necessarily arrive there, as many readers would hope I would. But that, I think, is intentional and something we might remember. We'll get to it. At the, uh, we'll get to it. Because I was struck by that as well. That, uh, particularly
1: um, the, the disappointment, to use your language, I the conclusion, the disappointment that you acknowledge your readers might feel. Uh, in, in how you are rendering the end of this work, um, um, there's a there's a, there's a, a thinker, philosopher, theorist, storyteller who makes who, who takes central stage in, in this in this book. That, and actually you use a quotation of his twice. Uh, uh, it first uh, it first appears in chapter one, and then again the conclusion. And this is Walter Benjamin's. Uh, uh, His thesis on the philosophy of history. Like, if we maybe can turn to page thirty-two of your book. um, Why? Like, I'm just, I'm super curious. Why is this quotation so meaningful, and why do you repeat it? Uh, It's on page, if I remember
2: correctly. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Actually, it's uh, here. 32. No, that's 32. Yes, yes, 31 to 32. Uh, this one here, in Marx, the proletariat appears as the last enslaved class, as the avenger that completes the task of liberation in the name of the generations of the downtrodden. This conviction, which had a brief resurgence in the Spartacist group, has always been objectionable to social Democrats. Within three decades, they managed virtually to erase the name of Blanqui, though it had been the rallying sound that had reverberated throughout the preceding century. Social democracy thought it fit to assign to the working class the role of the redeemer of future generations, but in this way cut the sinews of its greatest strength. Hmm. This training made the working class forget both its hatred and its spirit of sacrifice for both are nourished by the image of enslaved ancestors, rather than liberated grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. I have, st- I mean, uh, this this text, Theses on the Philosophy of History by Walter Benjamin has, has been with me my entire um, academic life, which is, um, you know, and has haunted me. And I still don't think I fully understand it, but something about this uh, passage resonated with me and was the kind of um, the, the sand that the, that creates the pearl for the oyster. You know, it, it's something that wo- that I worried and worried. Yeah. And for me, I think it's very important because he's pointing to the problem that the German Social Democrat Party faced in the 1920s, um, as it looked for all intents and purposes in the 1920s that uh, Germany would go towards a communist or socialist revolution. And then, of course, by the uh, early 1930s, pivoted as far right as you can possibly go towards Nazism. And uh, uh, Benjamin wrote these words while he was on the run from the Nazis. And uh, he died while fleeing the Nazis in the Pyrenees uh, and was thinking, well, what did the social Democrats miss? And I, what I take here to him to be saying is that he mi- they missed the sense that the proletariat for whom, you know, uh, because Benjamin is quite a, quite a uh, rigorous Marxist, he really sees them as the final class of uh, the great class struggle, the, the class that is going to overturn history and finally create a kind of mass liberation of all people, um, that this class is, their, their job is not simply to build a beautiful future only, but that part of building that beautiful future is this quest for what I term avenging this somehow answering the injustices of the past. And a bit later um, in the same uh, text, Benjamin uh, says in a quotation that I use at the book's conclusion that um, there's a, the, to paraphrase, there's a, there's a debt that is owed by the present to the past. Um, and that our, our coming as people who struggle today was expected on earth. Yeah. And that uh, we are called to avenge in some way the uh, struggles of those who came before us but were vanquished. And that, that debt, he says, cannot be settled cheaply. Uh, and I, it's, I, it, I find it of great solace and uh, meditative value this many years in thinking about both how to, how to think, how to theorize, and also what it means to be an activist in this moment. And the reason I think that this quotation is so important for me now is I feel that in the face of the rise of the far right, as we've seen it in the last few years, in the, in the face of a resurgence of racism and neo-colonial and neo-imperial feeling, there is a sense that the social democrats then, not today as then, are still fixated on this kind of forward together, um, insistence on a kind of uh, uh, unquestionable positive affect of, 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 of kind of an optimism. And I really want us to dwell more with the things that scare us because I think they're at work under the surface. And if we don't pay attention to them, things like revenge, um, they will easily be monopolized by others. Um, and I think this comes through again, in the book's conclusion too, where I, I turn also to the work of Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks, who who caution, uh, you know, other Black liberation and feminist activists uh, in the 1970s and 80s not to turn away from anger and not to turn away from vengefulness, uh, that there is something there to offer uh, that we can't do without. And that the kind of knee jerk pushing away of this, what in the book I call reconcilophilia, uh, maybe doesn't do us the service we think it does.
1: And see, and Max, this is what confounds me about the book see uh on the one hand you refer to revenge as this logic right and then at the very same time uh i get to the conclusion all throughout the whole book or rather you 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 engage with revenge as some form of feeling so when you turn to anger uh as you turn to in the conclusion by lord and uh uh, and hooks uh they are both engaging with these uh these affective registers and 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 not dismissing them and in terms of their transformative possibilities. So help me understand how revenge, you caution us, you're saying that you actually do see that it's not necessarily a feeling, uh, and rather a logic, and then you it plays out in with, with all of these kind of uh or things through these affective registers. Uh mm-hmm. how are you reconciling? this affective register that I see with, uh, the book as engaging in and at the very same time wanting to maybe kind of
2: mm-hmm. stay, stay a bit of a distance? It's such a hard question because I think it strikes at something that you and I both struggle with in our work so much, which is how do you at the one hand um, account for the way that a category can be a social construction and at the same time hold fast to it? So in this case, I think Um, Revenge, how we understand revenge, what we understand revenge to be, is shaped by the society in which we find ourselves. It's shaped by the power relations in which we find ourselves. You know, a lot of the time when I tell people I was working on a book on revenge, they would say, well, you know, the, the assumption would be that revenge hasn't changed. It's been the same since the time of the ancient Greeks, or it's the same as the stories that we associate with revenge in indigenous cosmologies that revenge is this, is this universal. And there might be some merit to that. I mean, we do see across the whole sweep and diversity of human uh, storytelling and mythologies that something we would identify as revenge reappears. However, my argument to the book is that in every age, in every society, there are dominant notions of what revenge is and dominant feelings about revenge. If it's a fearful thing, if it's an honorable thing, if it's a joyful thing, And that's shaped by the power relations of our day. So my argument in the book is, revenge as we understand it, and we can't help but understand it in this way, has been shaped by capitalism. It's not only that capitalism takes revenge, it's that that our entire idea about revenge is, has been constructed within capitalism. And so this book is an attempt to some ways, break us a little bit out of the way in which we've learned to think about revenge, to take us a different place. So within that, I think we have to say that, yes, anger and resentment and resentment, the kind of Nietzschean notion of resentment, and uh, fear and uh, and uh, sort of uh, bloodlust, all of these things are associated with revenge, but they are not the same as revenge. So I want to pull them apart Mm -hmm. from revenge for a moment so that then we can see how they fit back together again. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time as I'm doing that sort of um, work to try and understand how our notion of revenge has been constructed, I also then want to create some more sort of positive definitions of revenge and avenging as being something that has to do with systems and the way that we respond to systems, to take it away from this idea that revenge is simply something that happens between individuals, as we've been instructed by Hollywood and endless narratives of the same.
1: Um, yeah,
2: I have other questions,
1: but maybe I will stay with this for a little, one more follow-up, <laughs> which is, and it's, it's, it has to do with, maybe I'm pushing that a little bit about this, this, mm-hmm. this, Tension, this, the economy and emotion, in some sense, like uh, that. Maybe I'll find a way to come back to it. I'll come back to it some other way. Um, um I'm thinking about how you are rendering. So the subtitle of the book, uh, if we can remind uh, uh, listeners. Uh, of viewers. The subtitle of the book is The ghost of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts." I want to maybe, let's, I want to zoom in a little bit on the unpayable, the settling of unpayable debts uh, uh, following this conversation, following this question, and your response. How are you rendering unpayable debts in relation to revenge, uh, particularly since in the chapter, uh, in chapter two, you, you talk about the debt from above and the debt from below. I'd like to hear this idea of settling of unpayable debts uh, in relation to revenge?
2: Yeah, Um, I've been been working on debt as a topic for many years and I'm just sharing on the screen here the the cover of the book, uh, just to reflect the subtitle you were mentioning. I've been working on this topic of debt for many years because the bulk of my uh, scholarly work has been about financialization. So the way that banking and finance and speculative capital not only have an impact on the economy at large, but also have an effect on daily life, on the structures of feeling, on the way in which we interact, on the way in which we perceive ourselves and cooperate and and participate in the world. Um, And in this book, I, I really wanted to take this question of debt to another level, to think about two forms of debt which are sort of unspoken or unspeakable in our global order. And in order to think through the unspoken or unspeakable, I turn to art in in the third chapter of the book. Um, Those are debts from above or unpayable debts from above and unpayable debts from below. And very briefly, an unpayable debt from above is the kind of debt that's been forced on, for instance, Greece or on uh, Puerto Rico, or that was forced onto Haiti after its liberation, or that has really been used to, really uh, neo-colonize most of the global South uh, in the in the wake of decolonization movements in the latter half of the 20th century, where debt and an unpayable debt, an unsurmountable debt, becomes a means to leverage, a control over a whole population. But I'm also thinking about the unpayable debts that many of us owe. you know the, there's a statistic that I quote in the book that in fact, perhaps the majority of people in the United Kingdom, where I am right now, will actually die in debt. Yeah. They will not be able to repay their... And so what does that even mean when you can't do that? Uh, when, you can, when you are encumbered by a debt that constrains your life possibilities that, that essentially uh, exploits and extorts your labor that you're never going to crawl out of. And of course, uh, you know, someone like David Graeber has thought about this in a really profound way. Sadia Hartman, whom I, who I, I, whose work I is very inspirational in that chapter, also talks about what it means to be under uh, not only a constant financial debt, but a constant moral debt that keeps you in a kind of bondage. Uh, in her case, she's thinking about the condition of those enslaved people who who were who became freed after the uh, American Civil War. So on the one hand, we have these unpayable debts from above that impinge and and seem to then transcend any kind of rational uh, economic sense that the neoliberal order would claim to be uh, dominated by. At the same time, we have what I characterize as unpayable debts from below. And these are the debts that are owed to people and to groups that have been oppressed, exploited, uh, ha- who have survived genocide, uh, but that the system cannot admit, accept, or uh, really even acknowledge. These would be the debts that are owed for reparation. Ah, we're here in London and there's, um, there's uh, people are clapping just outside for the NHS workers here, it's eight o'clock. Uh, so we, we acknowledge the, yeah, the unpayable debt owed to uh, frontline healthcare <laughs> workers right now in the pandemic. Um, these are debts that, uh, you know, when we think about reparations for slavery or uh, the, the restoration of land stolen from indigenous people or the incredible violence done in the processes of colonialism, these unpayable debts from below cannot be acknowledged or admitted or repaid within the current order and yet demanding them is a kind of radical work and can inspire incredible forms of activism. And in both cases, I want to think through debt as a kind of revenge. If you have an unpayable debt from above imposed upon you, the debt in a certain sense, in a structural and systemic way, without anyone intending it, is vengeful. It acts vengefully upon you, whether it's an individual or whole nation. And similarly, for those who are claiming unpayable debts from below, those claiming of debts from the perspective of the powerful from whom the debts are claimed can only be interpreted by the powerful as vengeance. Mm-hmm. So when the claim for reparations comes, when the claim for the restoration of stolen lands comes, it becomes interpreted in the worldview of the powerful as a form of revenge and therefore defamed and, uh, and slandered as nihilistic and destructive and uh, you know, against the entire fabric of civilization itself. No, oh, that's super interesting. Um, I find the distinction.
1: I find the distinction really um, as slippery as avenging and revenge in terms of how you're thinking through uh, death from below and death from above. To whom is that is one avenging, and to to whom is it revenge in that sense? Uh, uh, because that constitutes the imagination, right? The imaginary capacity and how one is interpreting, uh, interpreting the action, um, which actually I'll save that question as well. Let's go. Uh, um, there's in uh, in your third chapter you uh, you introduce this idea of the hidden ledger, uh, and um, working with James Scott this, yeah, Scott's idea of the hidden transcripts, uh, you introduce in that idea. And you 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 illustrate this hidden ledger uh, through three stories of authoritarian uh, vengeance against money. I'm actually, I would like to hear, been, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how this hidden ledger becomes an act of resistance or a mode of almost pushing back against uh, this uh, this vengeful, uh, this structural violence that, that is enacted through through money.
2: Um. Yeah. Um, so I think just just to give the, the the viewers maybe a little bit of context. Yeah, the stories, the three stories. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I <laughs> um, the. In this chapter, I'm trying to push back against something that I've seen emerge recently in in sort of anti-capitalist circles, which is what I see as a very unhelpful optimism to the idea that we can just redesign money now and then everything will be great. You know, as long as we could just fix money and create a proper like system based on like bitcoins or, or blockchains or cryptocurrencies or whatever, even local currencies, then everything else would fall into place like a kind of chiropractic where you press the right part of the spine and everything kind of Uh, works out. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I wanted to note a a bit of skepticism to this, and also steal back something that gets talked about in many circles of financial innovation. And I I guess I wanted to ask this question, well, what would financial innovation look like from the perspective of those who had always been not only excluded from money, but actually like deeply oppressed and exploited by money? And to do that, I pick up this notion of the hidden ledger, which takes from James C. Scott's notion of the hidden transcript, which in a nutshell is that like most historians, because they're just relying on the writings of the rich and powerful, we never actually get a very good view of what oppressed and exploited people are thinking. And of course, in the worldview and the historians of the rich and powerful, they just say, oh, you know, the people love the king and they just love the boss and these enslaved people are happy and these colonized people, they just love what's going on. I mean. But for Scott, there's a hidden transcript that exists and we need to be attentive to what people are actually saying and what they're actually thinking. And I I transmute this to talk about the hidden ledger, to think about the ledger books of empire, the the accounting, and maybe there's a hidden accounting underneath. And so this ties into the kind of revolutionary storytelling I'm trying to approach in the book. And so I tell these sort of three stories that I found fascinating over the years. The first is about, what are called convict love tokens. And these were carved by prisoners or they were commissioned by prisoners who were awaiting transportation from Newgate prison or the Hulks here in the city of London uh, to be transported to the colonies to become indentured servants, but also at the same time uh, they would become colonists, settler colonists in Australia and the Americas. Um, And they would carve these, they would take a king's uh, uh, coin and efface the king's image and the, the iconography on the coin and then carve their own messages to their loved ones in the coin as something to leave behind because most of them would either die on the voyage or die in the hard labor of the colonies or never be able to accumulate enough money to return. In the second case I look at hobo nickels which were uh, sort of had their heyday between the 1920s and 1940s by uh hobos who were riding the rails in the United States during the great depression sort of this mass of surplus humanity surplus population who had been made surplus by the capitalist system who similarly were carving onto the face of the coin their own unique designs and messages as a kind of medium for a different kind of solidarity these coins in both cases were not used as a medium of commerce or not at least in terms of uh, like economic commerce as we understand it they were used as a medium of fellow feeling of solidarity of communication amongst the oppressed and the excluded and the final example is of uh, what's called Notgeld, which is emergency money that was minted in weimar germany um Uh, the ruinous debt that the allied powers placed upon Germany after the first world war meant that there was this massive runaway inflation uh, and German money became worthless basically and so municipalities and even uh, merchants would start minting their own emergency money in denominations of like a billion marks or 10 billion marks which would you know buy you a loaf of bread or something but this led to a whole explosion of creativity about people reimagining and taking back money into their hands as something they could create to express not a kind of eternal law of supply and demand as per Adam Smith and the myth of Homo economicus, but actually something that would wind together communities that needed to rely on each other and mutual aid much more in that moment of sort of dire crisis and dire stress. And so I look at the work of an art duo, a contemporary art duo these days named uh, Kahn and who who kind of play with the myth of a of an iceberg free state as it's called, an iceberg that floats into the German port city of Lubeck and then gets a a currency minted uh, on its behalf as if it were a free sort of anarchist temporary autonomous zone. So these three stories have almost been lost to history in a certain sense, but I wanna take them back in the spirit that we were talking about of Walter Benjamin's invitation to think through what it would mean to rekindle and avenge the dreams that of the vanquished who came before us. So what can we learn about money and capitalism from these kind of strange esoteric attempts from those at its very farthest margins? And I think what, what I, in, so there's what we can learn from them
1: uh, uh, in terms of our practices now, but also what we can learn about them in their moment of circulation. So what I find fascinating about them is that whether it be the, uh, the convent love tokens or the hobo nickels is that. Those were public transcripts. Uh, to kind of use uh, Scott's language in, the, in that book, they were themselves circulated, and yet at the very same time, they were actually purpose—they were being repurposed for something else. So it's not—it's not—it's not. It's not, it's not um, there's modes of deception that—that <laughs> uh, that is our work here that I'm seeing. You wanting to think about deception here. Again, in the mode of affect, not as, a, not as a positive or a negative, but in terms of what is being done, what is being mobilized for, uh, uh, what, the, what is what's the cultural work that this decept, deceptive act is doing um, in that sense. And that's one thing I'm finding really quite exciting in terms of how, how you turn to these stories. And mm-hmm. they are also, in this case, they are stories. Like, this is what I find fascinating, because the more that you write it, you said, oh, it's been said. So even in your narration of it, it's, it becomes this rumor, these gossip, these folk tale. Again, these are also part of those transcripts uh, which, which then begin to actually um, uh, offer possibilities for uh, when you talk about these revolutionary storytelling. So uh, again, this is where I go back to revenge and this multiple affective villains, right? So not having one, one uh, affective hub, so to speak. Uh, but it, it can have these multi-multi, it kind of allows multiple things to coalesce at once, yeah, which I find really fascinating. Um, so, let's move on, because I'm looking at time right now, and I'm looking at, uh, are there any questions yet for us, Emily, or are we fine? Okay, so I can ask one more question. The, the Two more questions, maybe three more questions. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking to uh so as I was saying to you folks, I just finished this book this morning, and uh as I was getting ready for this i was I kept on thinking about the how methodologically what you've done in this book um, and it's again, when I say it, it's quite undisciplined and on 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 un, unworldly un, un, un it's really a mythological feat, I'm thinking about the archives that you are able to kind of bring together to, have to tell this story. Um, and I'm thinking particularly about chapter four, uh, when you talk about the opium wars and the book that comes to mind immediately in terms of methodological and, th- and the, the approach is Lisa Lowe's, uh, uh, the, uh, four, the Intimacies of the Four Continent. Uh, and and this because here is a uh, you let's read like actually before i even go on let me read you the opening sentence how you begin this chapter uh where is the, where would you be page um chapter four the opening chapter you you take on this huge uh this huge You move us from the Caribbean to North America to Asia to Europe and you loop us back again. It's like this, like, it's like say we are continuously being looped. uh, And then all of a sudden, we just, you just hold us still. uh, And it's something that I I marvel at how that happens. And so I think it's worth showing how you begin it to see, to see you begin from this really statistics. Okay, where, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? war
2: Are you thinking about the statistic about uh, yes? The opioid That's death? right. You know, That's right. It, yes. Yes. That's right. Um, okay. Page one twenty. One twenty. Okay. okay. Um. Yeah. The so this chapter, uh, in some sense, is an attempt to account for this terrifying. Uh, statistic that demographers have pointed out in the United States that the, the greatest predictor of if a, a jurisdiction in the United States, a county, would swing from voting for Barack Obama in 2012 to voting for uh, Donald Trump in 2016 was the, um, uh, the proportion of so-called deaths from despair in that jurisdiction. So deaths from despair include deaths from alcoholism, suicide, and very importantly, uh, opioid overdose. And here, for those outside of the United States who are maybe less familiar with this, the United States is right now, and for the last 10 years, has been embroiled in a totally catastrophic prescription opioid uh, nightmare, where a huge percentage of the American population uh, became addicted to um, opioids that are more powerful than uh, street heroin, uh, that were basically pushed on them by doctors uh, that were in turn under a huge amount of pressure from pharmaceutical companies that had essentially gamed the, um, the medical data to make it appear that these drugs were not addictive, when in fact, of course, they were extremely addictive. Um, this correlation between, on the one hand, deaths from despair and opioid overdoses and The what I'm terming revenge politics, the revenge politics of Donald Trump, I think on the one hand seems very intuitive to us. Um, And we have heard a great deal about the the anger of the so-called white working class in the United States and how they were disenfranchised and forgotten. And there's an aspect of that that is true, these are also people who have been chewed up and spit out by capitalism, and yet the way in which that has been framed by the demographers and by mainstream commentators has done us an incredible disservice in terms of allowing us to understand the much deeper and longer roots of the connection between drugs, uh, narcotics, uh, culture, race and injustice in the United States. So in this chapter, I go back to the opium wars where the British especially, but also other Western powers basically forced the Chinese empire in the mid, uh, 19, uh, mid-1800s mid to import tons and tons and tons of opium with catastrophic effects on Chinese society. And when the Chinese attempt- empire attempted to uh, forbid the importation of opium, the European powers led by the British uh, essentially attacked the Chinese empire and, uh, with overwhelming force and forced them to reopen the markets. And this led to a whole range of social catastrophes uh, for the Chinese people, the most populous, until then, the richest uh, nation on earth. Uh, but also with many resonances that travel down to us. uh, Because while on the one hand, the loot, as they called it, that flowed into uh, the United States and the UK and France from China during these years, went on to help build those massive empires, uh, it also really contributed to the building of a kind of white supremacist worldview that then that sort of inscribed or conscripted the working class to a kind of fellow feeling or fidelity with empire, uh, such that they saw that their fate was more bound up with the their class enemies within the empire than with all of the other people around the world that the empire was exploiting. And not only from this moment, but from before, but in this moment I think is, is emblematic, we begin to see a real connection between on the one hand, the kind of displacement of responsibility for drug epidemics onto racialized people. So in the 19th century in the United States and in England, Chinese people or people presumed to be of Chinese origin were blamed for the opium that was coming into these countries, even though of course, it was the empires themselves that were producing the massive opium trade. We also begin to see the association of drugs with, uh, in the United States, especially with people of Latin American origin, and the displacement of social antagonisms within capitalism onto racialized people as outsiders and threats. But we also begin to see what I think about in this chapter as the narcotic quality of whiteness itself. And I mean that in two ways. On the one hand, whiteness as a social construct, we're not talking about the particular phenotypical characteristics of people who are today considered white. We're talking about whiteness as a social construct that is historically situated and built and rebuilt in the relations of power as, a, as an abstraction that becomes real. That notion of whiteness then encourages those people who can access whiteness, who are considered white, to forget in some way and desensitize themselves to the suffering of others who are considered to be non-white. And so it has this anesthetic effect. It dulls our sensitivity. It makes us not care, not feel for others. Uh, And likewise, however, as capitalism's contradictions grow, as they have in the last 20 years over the span of the opioid epidemic in the United States, the drug of whiteness, if we can frame it that way, becomes less and less effective because it no longer delivers the same kind of material securities it was once imagined to be able to deliver. And so whiteness gets more and more violent as so often tragically happens with those who are addicted, especially to opium related drugs when uh, those drugs are deprived in the sort of horrific effects uh, that that drug uh, portends. And I want to tie in here just before concluding the, the question that uh, Emily has shared with us from the, the, yeah, uh, from the audience, because I think it really ties in. Uh, Mark writes, would one example of revenge capitalism in a systemic way be that way people are treated badly in the United States when ill, in that if you wish to receive care, you must have insurance. If so, what other real examples can you give us? And I think that is a great example. It's precisely, you know, the society has the capacity to care for you Resources exist. It's simply a matter that those resources are being redirected towards the wealthy. And your deprivation of care becomes a form by which the system takes a kind of revenge, though no one necessarily intends it. There's no evil mastermind out there who says, I want revenge on you because you're poor, etc. Now, the one thing I would say to tie this in is that what's so interesting about the opioid epidemic in the United States is that demographers have noted, and many uh, white supremacists have also wanted to mobilize around the fact that this this, uh, ailment, the opioid uh, epidemic, seems to have somehow missed um, uh, non-white people. Uh, At least non-white people have not succumbed to the opioid epidemic to the same extent that they have succumbed to other previous epidemics, for instance, street heroin or crack cocaine in previous moments of American capitalism. Mm. But the reasons, once we look at this, are actually incredibly damning and it ties to precisely Mark's uh, uh, question here. Black people, especially in the United States, when they would go to doctors, would be prescribed pain medication at a far lower rate because doctors, though they were none of them perhaps, explicitly white supremacists or racists. In spite of that, there was a cultural understanding among doctors that Black people felt less pain and that they could endure higher rates of pain. And therefore, Black people were denied prescriptions for these pain medications at a much higher rate than white people were. And similarly, Black people in the United States tended not always but tended to live in neighborhoods that had much less access to pharmaceutical uh, care much less access to pharmacies that would stock these drugs and so they were in a weird way demographically speaking spared the kind of devastating effect that the opioid epidemic has had on white communities with the proviso that still hundreds of thousands of black people and people of color in the united States are suffering from opioid dependencies that are, were caused by the drug pushers the of tor- the corporate ladder. It's just demographically speaking, there's such an exceptional pattern here compared to what other patterns have been in the past. What I find super
1: fascinating here is you, you, you direct our attention to uh, Buck Morris's work on uh, the capitalist sensorium, right? And so here, uh, demography that are often Perceived as overly affectable. And this is Denise uh, DeSilver's Denise, uh, uh, language of affectable, the global idea of race. Uh, these are groups that are seen as heavily affectable, and at the very same time, are uh, imagined to feel less pain. And so it is this moment when the, the, the capitalist sensorium sees this pro, uh, the proletarian as sensing, feeling entities, and at the very same time, it, it, it kind of sees them as actually unable to feel pain so i find i find I find these moments really quite um, two sides of the same equation in terms of the logic of uh, our logic of uh, producing disposable bodies uh, mm-hmm.
2: it's, uh, such
1: a it's such a riddle yeah
2: there's
1: a there's a question uh, from Brittany uh, and she asked should we be seeking to overcome revenge uh, cap revenge or redefine it under
2: socialism or communism? That's such a great question. I mean, um, yes, I mean, ultimately I think that I would like to live in a system which is not in and of itself fundamentally vengeful. And I think capitalism is a system that's fundamentally vengeful, uh, but a lot rests in what you define as the definition. I mean, I think most like as, as I've mentioned before, I think the socialist and communist dream, whether they've been articulated in the kind of conventions of Western uh, and, and uh, sort of Eurocentric Marxism, or whether they've been articulated in the kind of global South forms of Marxism um, have been understood by capitalists and those who benefit from capitalism as recklessly vengeful. That, you know, this is, this is the uh, lazy and entitled poor demanding their revenge on the, on the hardworking rich. Um, and this is a theme that we see constantly repeated. So in a weird way, I think that uh, there is something that's necessary about create, cultivating what I'm calling the avenging imaginary to get us to a horizon where some sort of form of socialism or communism might be possible. What would revenge look like after Uh, some sort of revolutionary change I don't know I mean I think in a weird way my book is not so useful in in towards that question for which I can only say it'll have to be in a future book and the reason is this it's not because I think that there will be no revenge after some perfect revolution and we're all happy and we just go around and there'll be no more heartbreak and everything will be great would that that were true I think rather in a future society we will have new words for common feelings and new feelings for common words, to frame it in a certain way. I think what we mean by revenge uh, will change in a society where the system itself is not seeking to take revenge on us. And the work of this book to try and recapture a meaning of revenge, to use it in a different way, will no longer be quite as necessary. Mm -hmm. That said, I think that there is something, now to go against my own Uh, my own uh, claims, I think there is something fundamental about uh, what happens when we're hurt or when something's taken from us that makes us respond in certain ways. But whether we decide to call that revenge or something else, whether we think that revenge is good and bad, whether we think that revenge and avenging are different, I think we'll look very, very different in a different side of society. Where perhaps the wounds uh, that that we would that would cause us to take revenge will not cut so deep in a society where everyone's actually cared for.
1: It's funny, like my, in the conclusion, uh, you you avoid. I'm, <laughs> you avoid, like, and I'm seeing why you perhaps even avoid giving any kind of answers uh, uh, if that's if, if that's even the word. Like you part of this book has been attempting to be in, in, it has been a collaborative thinking work with so many scholars. Now, I mean, for those, who, those, for those of you who have read you know what I mean. And for those of you who are going to read it, you will see it. It is, it is this, it feels as if there's a chorus, at work here that are, that are moving together, are thinking together. Uh, and, so, and so when I'm hearing a question in, in terms of um, answers, I think it falls short <laughs> uh, in terms of what is the context of this question? What is the context of the situation? What is the history that is happening there? You talk about this entangled logic that, that you are trying to work through. And so any, any movement requires, those, requires equally to be an entangled movement. Uh, um, uh, and so, I, for example, uh, you, you end by saying that you want to ground your, um, you want to avoid uh, a common temptation to include with a celebration of what, uh, movements or, and you go on, you, you want to you also stay away from uh, 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 theorizing it in terms of, uh, um, uh, what you call it? Wow, what did you say? Let me see. You take you, you, you a whole paragraph where you say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And in fact, even though it's in the negative, it's in the, I'm not going to do it. That's, that was more instructive as, a, as an answer than what you would have done, if that makes sense. So you begin by saying on, uh, on page 191, you say, at risk, a risk of disappointing the reader who surely by now is holding back demoralization in the hopes of triumph conclusion. In the remaining pages, I can only offer some hints as to what an avenging imaginary might be, uh, might, might be that could without failing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Where was I? Uh, without failing, pray to the law of uh, reconcili reconciliophilia, Rise to the challenge. Of our moment and contribute to the kind of revolutionary movements we would need to capsize and replace revenge capitalism. I have opted to decline the urge to be prescriptive in this book. I have also opted for the most part to avoid the common temptation to conclude with a celebration of contemporary social movements, though I am inspired by many and believe that collective mobilization is the only way to. And you go on. Uh, rather, um, Rather, I have opted to take wisdom from a set of authors who, while like all of us caught up in revenge, capitalism theorize from the perspective of communities most targeted by its vengefulness, notably radical indigenous thinkers from the territories currently colonized by Canada and black feminist thinkers are struggling within against and beyond the confines of a white supremacist United States. So, and then you go on and you go on to say that, uh, I rely on below, uh, below ground the analysis of resentment, anger and solidarity in the experiences of intersectional black indigenous and queer positionalities, which have been systematically disempowered and have access to few if any privileges within revenge capitalism. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really moved by this move of refusal. There's a mode of refusing the idea of this is what we need to do and rather, what has what have folks been doing within these within these traditions that are worth uh, uh, holding on to? So maybe the question for you to help us think through: Why choose? What does it mean to end your meditation uh, by relying on these analyses, these positionalities? What does it mean to kind of end on this chorus? If and you would see what I mean by chorus when you read the book, just given these. Uh,
2: intense meditation on your writing. Why? I think to some extent because I want to confess that I just don't know. Okay. I mean, I, I it's a confession of my own ignorance. There's many things I could write about my personal feelings about anger and vengefulness and resentment um, from my own experience as uh, sort of an, a, a white male, cis, hetero uh, sort of activist academic, and I've written about that elsewhere, I think it's much more interesting to hear from this plurality of voices and specifically to hear from the voices of theorists who are coming from an embodied space where many of the forms of acceptance or inclusion into the revenge capitalist apparatus are not available. You know, for me, I I am welcomed given my embodied position in society. I'm welcomed to take a place in revenge capitalism. I, I'm welcomed every day as a professor, you know, as as part of a. As, I'm I'm welcomed to take the rewards and the uh and the benefits from participating in reproducing the system. And I felt that based on that, there's something about revenge that I don't understand fully. There's something that I mean, it, certainly there is a desire for vengeance against this system that burns in me, but I think it might burn brighter and clearer in others. And so the wager at the end of the book is that by taking up the work of people who were never offered and were never meant to survive within revenge capitalism, there would be something there that I couldn't uh, express and articulate. Um, and is it possible
1: that some of these thinkers are also not interested in entering revenge capital, the system of that. Uh, um,
2: And yeah, so. I think so. And I think all of the thinkers are also people who look revenge in the face and then make a very strategic choice about how to engage. Exactly, exactly. Um, Because, you know, in, in the section there with with Bell Hooks, she speaks about the danger of approaching vengefulness that she learned very young, as a very young person growing up in the US South, that, the, that vengeance and blackness was a, a recipe for, for murder. I mean, you would, you would be killed if, if white people in the South suspected you of even having vengeance in mind. And so there's a way that the vengeance turned inwards. And that's something that I just think that, you know, I mean, I I talk quite openly at the beginning of the book about my own family experience and history, but it's something that I think I wouldn't necessarily understand. So I think turning to these authors who have this experience, this complex experience of the politics of vengeance, then allows me to end the book with an opening rather than a closing.
1: Uh, How could it, that's a question here. So maybe I should read, run out of time. Uh how did you decide? This is from Sasha. How did you decide what to keep in and what to leave out? How did you sharpen the lens uh on revenge capitalism, especially given that it's an expensive
2: your know, your view of revenge is expensive here? Yeah. Um it it was like a trance. I don't know. Um <laughs> I think uh there was a whole chapter that got cut, unfortunately, which will come out in some other form about the history of palm oil and the way in which empires are lubricated and greased, literally and figuratively. And it was about uh, that I, 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 I regret not being able to include. I had long sections that critique the work of Quentin Tarantino. I had There are sections that we didn't get a chance to talk about today are uh, sort of cultural studies that range from Shakespeare to Herman Melville to uh, oh, Kardashian um, that, that did get Snapchat. included. But, to Snapchat, but, which I'm
1: so, uh, your chapter on Snapchat, like I think this is what I mean by the expensive nature of this, the object of analysis. There's a way that you, even palm oil, which we didn't get here, but there's, you. It's begging me to ask a question about the mediums and the circulation of these texts and the writing. There's something there that is begging me to. So what does it mean? How do you, how does palm oil, palm nut, particularly circulate, uh, and how does Snapchat? How do? How does this, Shakespeare, I think he began by writing on what, uh, uh, the mention of Venice and then we move to, uh, we move to Ahmed, and then we move to Titus and so there's there's these texts or the Kardashians, and so we, there's these texts with from multiple mediums and then you are also you've you've organized this book in terms of uh, uh in, with interludes with chapters and interludes so there is something happening here at the level of 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 mediation that. That, that you are trying to also get us to think through in terms of revenge. That, that's happening at a textual level in terms of how you are writing the book. That I'm actually really quite curious if that was
2: something that you were also thinking deliberately also, you know. I don't know if I can claim, I wish I could claim that there was some master plan or some master narrative. I, I suppose I, w- the way I set out to write a book is like this is I pick the topic and you hold fast to it and you see where it takes you and then eventually you start seeing it in many many places because i think the nature of capitalism today is such that uh it is a it is a totalizing system it is it it really does dominate or at least infiltrate and and shape so many aspects of our lives and and our reality especially when you consider its full entanglements with colonialism and empire as well that you will find its traces anywhere and so for me it's like a kind of um, it's a kind of forensic exercise uh, when you're looking for a serial killer who's also the government and also the money you know like it's it's everywhere and nowhere and so you need to I feel have a kind of enthusiasm to try and see its traces in many places and then be able to kind of weave together a story about it. And again it comes back to that notion of of storytelling and what you know I mean winter uh, to return to her work has this incredible provocation for us which is to take responsibility for being human in a completely different way than we've ever done before. You know we've been told to be human in only the way that we seek to emulate homo economicus. Exactly. And she tells us no there's something else there there's a different way of telling a story about who we are and what we are and what we could be together and what we could be apart. And to some weird extent, I, I feel so haunted by that, that challenge. And I think it's this, in, in some way across the gulf of space and time, that, that challenge she gives us rhymes with the challenge that Walter Benjamin gave us. And that is a debt that has, cannot be settled cheaply in some way. Yeah, no, huh, um, huh.
1: <clears throat> it's funny when before when we began, I was thinking about. Uh, I wish I wished I'd finished the book maybe yesterday, so that I could actually have gone back and reread Means The Storyteller. You know, because I was really I was fascinated to think of reread that in relation to what. Uh, Sylvia Winters, uh, the idea of the homo errors. I want to think about those two together. Given your, your interest with uh, 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 with Benjamin in this book, I really would love to have thought those two together. But um um you got me thinking now about yeah oh we have we have we have those conversations to ah, okay. yes. there, there are two questions here maybe we can take these and uh, oh huh Because the responsibility that Benjamin is asking of us heres almost, it's almost, you talk about time and space. I'm thinking about the the movement both going back and forth at the same time. Like, I mean, if you can use the angel of progress, for example, as an example in some sense uh, of being responsible for both the future, I'm thinking back to the quotation, the grandchildren that he refers to, and the ancestors that he refers to as well. So there is there is those that the responsibility is also is also multi is also multi directional in that sense. So it's not only it's not unilateral you know, in that sense, and I find that really fascinating in terms of storytelling. Uh, yeah, in terms of the accountability and responsibility in that sense. I, that's one thing I'm thinking about, and that would necessarily. Uh, necessarily require a different mode of narration in that sense uh uh anyways i, I need to return to it and we need to have this conversation mm-hmm. uh, but the two questions here one the first one is from ruth Cutlow and she asked the question what do you see as the relationship between revenge and justice it's a big that's question not, that's not a small question i mean it's just a small question I mean.
2: <laughs> uh to maybe just make it to try and answer quite briefly i think in this in this book, let's say there's a difference between capital J justice and capital and little j justice. So, capital J justice is like the infrastructure of the state that insists that it adjudicates the laws and it enforces the laws and it delivers justice. Um, this is the kind of uh, in, in the kind of canon of Western philosophy, the idea is that, uh, you know, originally before there was a state and before the sort of Western government system. There was a war of all against all uh, and there was a sort of state of nature and this state of nature, the European philosophers projected onto non-white people, non-Europeans around the world and said there, there's evidence of how huma- humans are without the benefit of a state and a government to provide justice. And in that state of nature, uh, revenge rules. Um, there's nothing outside of revenge. It's just somebody hurts you, you hurt them back, you take something from them, they take something from you, etc. etc. Uh, with sort of, and this is the Hobbesian version that, you know, at some point, there's a kind of uh, unspoken and unsigned social contract that means that we give up our right to take revenge and we give it to the sovereign, we give it to the the ruler, and they then get to impose, quote-unquote, justice, like big J justice, right? Like, uh, so you don't go and kill someone who hurt you or took something from you. You take your complaint to the king or whoever, and they dispense justice. Um, my argument, and it's not at all an original argument here, is that ultimately that justice that the king claims to deliver, that big J justice, is vengeance cloaked as justice. It's just a form of justice, and it's a, it's a a form of revenge, and it's a form of systemic revenge that aims to reproduce the power of the sovereign. And in order to be able to reproduce it and to legitimize it, to say, yes, this is justice and not revenge, it instead casts Revenge onto its others, onto those who seek justice, small j justice, outside of the terrains. So, you know, in this case, we can think about peasant movements or peasant uprisings or anti colonial uprisings seeking justice, small j justice, which then the monopolists of big j justice claim, oh, those people are just pathologically vengeful. So, on one level, the relationship between revenge and justice is a kind of mystification of the powerful. On the other level though, there is something that we can't deny that what we want when we want revenge in our own lives and also in terms of an avenging imaginary of our dreams of getting justice for the horrible crimes that have been perpetuated against people and against the earth, that revenge or that avenging is tied to a notion of justice. It's tied to a notion of of a thwarted unfairness that we feel deeply and effectively. Um, And so I don't want to necessarily say that all justice is necessarily just mystification. I think there is a desire for a kind of justice, but I think what impinges upon us is as that same moment that we reconsider what revenge means and think towards this kind of notion of avenging, we should think about, well, what would justice look like that is much more capacious and broad and opens up the possibilities for different ways of thinking rather than imagining we know exactly what justice means or should look like um uh yeah i think i'll leave it at that for the for the moment we have time for one more question from jonathan
1: uh jonathan harris asks. uh he says that he encountered your ideas about revenge a couple of years back uh when uh he was focused on forgiveness he wants to know whether it's fair to say you are working towards a sublimation of revenge (laughs) <laughs> I wonder
2: how he means the word sublimation uh, here. Um, uh, no, I, I don't think so. I, I think I'm working towards um, a, a revolutionary definition of revenge is what I'm striving for here. I'm striving to give us, I'm striving to separate out this thing I'm calling revenge as a systemic and structural force from this desire for justice and this, this motivating imaginary I'm calling avenging. And so I really want, I don't so much want to sublimate revenge to other things. In fact, I think the desire to sublimate revenge is problematic in a lot of cases. So just, uh, and I think it'll interest Jonathan who, who does really fascinating work around money. Part of the theory that I develop in the book is that in some way for neoliberal philosophers, money is a sublimation of revenge. So not to get too thick in the deep in the weeds at a certain point their their theory is that neoliberal economies where all of society is opened up to to money and everything is determined by supply and demand and where there's no longer any overarching sovereign when we no longer have a state essentially we just have markets then revenge will be conquered because we can sublimate our vengeful instincts and desires into competitive market behavior and that will benefit everyone Sorry. Kind of extreme libertarian fantasy that very few people actually articulate, but still somehow animates the the broader imaginary of the kind of uh, neoliberal ethos. And you can read about it in very sophisticated ways in the work of Hayek or uh, in the work of Francis Fukuyama, who has lately kind of moved away from it. But you know, um, so there's a sense that the sublimation of revenge in Western thought is often used as a way of thinking through contemporary institutions. Or to take another example, you have Nietzsche, who says, well, you know, the sublimation of people's desire for revenge actually is what allows for society to function. Um, uh, though he's not in favor of it functioning in the way that it is, or who knows what he's in favor of anyway. Now all the Nietzscheans are gonna be angry at me. That's- in any case, <laughs> I think there's a problem with the desire to, to create a theory where you say, aha, vengefulness is our nature, and we sublimate it into something that's good for everyone. I don't think that that's a good approach. I think it's actually much more interesting to say, we don't know what revenge is. We're constantly redefining what revenge is and what work can be done by this kind of effort to redefine and re-theorize revenge. Um, And I think that's less a work of sublimation and more a work of actually trying to raise it to the surface and make sort of um, more interesting terminology. Isn't that a work of story, if I can go back to the idea of
1: univocation, uh, vocation, uh, Benjamin's, the storyteller. Uh, mm-hmm. What was the distinction he makes between story and uh, um, he makes a really necessary distinction between story and is it information or communication? Like, and I find it, I find it the density of story, where where it doesn't it doesn't seems to be about either sublimate and. Um, sublimating it or there's no there's not stories it's not about sublimating it and it doesn't with the story of then and the story of now it's the temporality of it doesn't lose when the story is told in some sense
2: and i Mm -hmm. find that really quite
1: fascinating uh in light of what you're saying
2: i think Um, this is in some way i feel like something you and i together have been asking each other and ourselves for many years which is where should there even be a line between theory and story? No, exactly. exactly. Yeah. No. No. And I think that's what I one thing I enjoyed
1: very much about this book is that is the writing of it, uh, where it's the mode of how you engage with these theorists, how you wrote about their work, was as if you were telling someone about them and not trying to. You were you were telling a story. Uh, you were telling you were yeah, it was a telling and not a theorizing. And if that even makes any, this, the distinction makes any sense at all, but you, you engage them in a mode of storytelling in a narrative, so uh, um, which, 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 which was exciting to see how you were citing them too. Uh, so it, you, it became less about prescriptive in some sense, and you had to actually leave behind yourself and also be there at once there was this double movement in the writing of it that I found really quite energizing in some sense uh um yeah it's, a, it's actually really quite when you say it's a hybrid of work which you see at one point it really you, you stay true to it in the mode of the writing the articulation of itself um and so yeah I'm excited about that you, you are moving to that place of of I think what we've been all struggling to figure out how to how to merge and not not this creative nonfiction but actually how to how to write how to write something that we know in a mode that would actually make a difference in some sense and so thank you for that yeah thank you